Please turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, and we'll read just the first 11 verses of Matthew 21, though I commend the rest of the, the passage to you. In fact, would encourage you to read in uh, these uh, next couple of days each of the accounts, the four accounts of Jesus entrance into the city of Jerusalem. But let's, um, let's just give attention to these first 11 verses of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21. This is God's Word. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you. And immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble And mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet, Jesus, from Nazareth of Galilee. This is God's Word, let's ask God for his spirit that we might benefit from this, his word. Let's pray together. Lord, do come and help us. Help the one who preaches, help those who listen, anoint us all, minister to our hearts, set yourself before us in all of your saving glory. We ask in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Because I believe that preaching is a conversation, it's more than a conversation, much more than a conversation, but it is in part a conversation. It is you hearing from me, and then it is it is I over the course of days and weeks and months and years, in varieties of settings and contexts, whether in your homes or at lunches or in conversations after a worship service or sometimes in a hospital, it is I hearing from you. And the exchange forms and shapes how we do this together as a church. 
And so because I believe preaching is a conversation, I want to continue the conversation that we all were a part of last week, and certainly the conversation extends weeks and months before last week, but I want to continue the conversation that we all were a part of last, or at least many of us were a part of last week. And I want to remind you of two things that you heard from Dr. Mark Futato. He said a lot of things that are worth remembering, but I want to remind you of a couple of them. And the first of them is this, that if you had lived during the days, say, of Solomon, which was a great time in the history of Israel, when Israel enjoyed abundance and prosperity and peace on her borders, didn't last very long, but if you had lived during those times, or if you lived later, say in the 400s, the the late 400s, which is to say 490, 495, maybe around 500 B.C., the time of Zechariah's prophecy, the prophecy that is referred to and cited in verse 5 of chapter 21, if you had lived in either of those times and you'd been plowing your fields, you know, walking behind your oxen or your your donkeys or whatever it was that you might have used to plow your field, and you were thinking about something that was said in church the previous week, meaning in synagogue, in gathering together to hear the Scriptures read and to hear the Scriptures expounded, and you puzzled over something, the thing you couldn't do is take a lunch break from your plowing and go home and pull down your copy of the ESV study Bible so that you could look at the study notes perhaps to resolve this puzzling thing that had been puzzling you since you had heard it on the Saturday before. You couldn't do that because you didn't have a Bible. In fact, there was probably, if you were fortunate, only one Bible in the whole community, and that was the copy of the Scriptures that would have been entrusted to the local priest and kept in the synagogue. You don't have that excuse. You have Bibles. You probably have multiple copies of Bibles. One of our members referred to a brief conversation that he had with Mark Futado last week in which he was talking about his Bible reading. And he said, don't start in the middle. Start at the beginning and make your way through it. You don't have that excuse. I don't have that excuse. And that leads me then to the second thing. The second thing that Mark said that he was, which we all can be, and that is detectives. Because you have the scriptures, because you have the Bible, you can become a detective. You can go exploring. You can find stuff. Now, I get paid to do that. You pay me to do that. You pay me to be a detective, to go exploring. But let me ask you something. When, when you are made aware of some surprise from the Scriptures, is it more fun when you find the surprise yourself or when you hear somebody else finding the surprise? It's way more fun when you find it. So be a detective. Go exploring. 
And as you go exploring, let me give you a couple of, a couple of guidelines for your exploration. On this Palm Sunday, as we're gathered for worship at the beginning of Holy Week, having sung hosannas, having read hosannas, having sung blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, having read blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, as we look forward from Palm Sunday to Evensong tonight, to Monday, Thursday, to Good Friday, to the darkness of Saturday, and to the glorious triumph of Resurrection Day. Let me give you a couple of guidelines as you go exploring this week. The first of them is this. Pay attention to details. Pay attention to details. There can be marvelous surprises in details. Let me give you an example. Example is right here in this text. It's verse 5 of Matthew 21. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Mounted on a donkey. On the colt, the child, if you will, of a beast of burden. Everything I'm about to tell you in the next two or three minutes, you could learn yourself. You could learn these things yourself. But let me just tell you that this citation from the prophet Zechariah, who was a contemporary of Haggai, which places him in the post-exilic period of time, around 500 B.C., after the nation was exiled under Nebuchadnezzar and the northern tribes exiled before that under the Assyrians, this is after all of that, Zechariah's prophecy about 500 B.C., this text comes from that prophecy, and it's a remarkable and very hopeful prophecy. And here's why it's a remarkable and hopeful prophecy. This particular verse in Zechariah chapter 9. It's hopeful because it promises a king. It promises a king. Now, why is that significant? Well, it's significant because it has been decades in the days of Zechariah. It has been decades since Israel has had a king, a thing that distinguishes them, that marks them, is having their own king, and they haven't had one for decades. And now fast forward five centuries to the time of Jesus, and here is that prophecy being attributed to Jesus. Now it's not a matter of decades. Now it's centuries. Since Israel has had a king. But here's the surprise. Isn't this the surprise? The surprise is how the king comes. The king comes on a donkey. The king comes not even on a donkey, but on the child of a donkey. The foal a colt of a donkey, an animal probably a, a year old, 14 months old, 15 months old, something like that. And what is a donkey? A donkey is a beast of burden. A donkey is an animal associated with labor and sweat and service. A king 
on a donkey, as Leon Morris puts it, is a contradiction in terms. A king doesn't come on a donkey. A king comes in a chariot, a gilded chariot, pulled by war horses. But here is Jesus, humble and riding, not just on a donkey, but on the foal, the colt of a donkey, a young animal. If you've seen depictions of Jesus on Palm Sunday, whether perhaps in some film version of the triumphal entry, or if you've seen still images, pictures, paintings, drawings of Jesus in Sunday school curriculum on Palm Sundays, it could be that you've seen Jesus on the foal of a donkey actually dragging his feet in the dust. So low to the ground was he. So low to the ground was he. Why do you suppose these people wanted to put put garments on the back of these animals? Why do you suppose they wanted to cover the dusty road with palm branches and other garments? This is their king. Kings are to be honored, right? Kings are to be exalted. But this king comes differently, doesn't he? He comes with his feet dragging in the dust. A detail. A detail. But details reveal significant lessons. Give us significant truths. Give us deep and important characteristics and features of what it is for us to be followers of Jesus. What is the truth here? What is the lesson here? Again, continuing the conversation from last week, if I practice, if I practice what someone encourages me to practice, if I meditate upon the word, like the cow, that takes in fodder and chews and masticates that fodder and swallows, ingests that fodder and then regurgitates it and chews it some more and then swallows it and then regurgitates it again so that it can get every bit of nutritional value out of that bit of fodder. If I do that with a truth like this, what am I going to learn? What am I going to see? What am I going to find? I'm going to find something that is markedly different from what I expect. Let me put it to you this way. What is the lesson learned? Answer that with another question. What is the trajectory of the life of Jesus? What is the trajectory of the life of Jesus? You remember last week, last Sunday morning, that Mark so powerfully showed us the trajectory of the Psalms. From lament to praise, from suffering to glory, and how that trajectory comes to individual expression in Jesus. Lament 
to praise, suffering to incomparable, unimaginable glory. But there's another trajectory, isn't there? There's another trajectory for the King of Glory, isn't there? And that other trajectory is from glory to suffering. From praise in the Father's presence to the most agonizing lament ever uttered by any human being. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, the culture of the day of Jesus was no different from our own. Both then and now, the focus is on how high you can get. That's why we have resumes. That's why we pad resumes. In Jesus' day, it was no different. In the days of the kings, it was no different. Read the story of Naaman. In 2 Kings, Naaman, second in power to the king of Assyria, possessing the resume, offended when he goes to the home of the prophet, because here he is, the commander of the armies of Assyria, empowered by the king of Assyria to do whatever he needs to do to heal his leprosy. He shows up at the doorstep of the prophet, and the prophet sends a servant to greet him. And what's Naaman's response? He is offended. Why? Because in Naaman's day, Jesus' day, and our day, the focus is on how high you can get. And when you get high, you expect people to honor you. But it's so different in the kingdom of King Jesus. Because the trajectory for Jesus, having been as high as he could possibly have been, the trajectory for Jesus was to go low in humility in weakness, in dishonor and shame for your exaltation. I've got to commend Ed Welch's book to you if you've not read it. Shame. How God lifts the pain of suffering and disappointment And rejection, and here's the freeing and hopeful thing in this book. The trajectory of that book, the focus of that book, is not to lift you up. It is to lift Jesus up as a glorious 
rescuing, restoring Redeemer, who as Mark said last week, see how the conversation has continued to be in my head from last Sunday. As Mark said last week, Jesus, who has gone lower than any one of us in this room, arguably than all of us put together, no matter how low you have gone, Jesus has gone lower for you. And for your exaltation. A detail. But a really big deal detail. That's the nature of the king. That's the nature of the kingdom. We've said this before. I tell you, I can't hear it enough. I can't hear enough that this king and this kingdom are so different from the kings and kingdoms of this world. Thanks be to God. But here's the second thing. Let the details lead you. And so learn from the details, but then let the details lead you. Lead you where? I have to do this so painfully quickly. Let the details lead you. Learn from them, but let them lead you. Lead you where? Where where does this little verse lead you? This fifth verse of Matthew 21, this citation from Zechariah. Well, it takes you back to the prophet Zechariah. It takes you back to his 14 chapters, which is conveniently divided into two parts, so you don't need even to read the whole prophecy. You just need to read the last seven. Read 9 through 14. Oh, I guess that's 6. Read 9 through 14. It takes you back to chapters 9 through 14 of Zechariah. You read the passage in its context, and you think, my goodness, this thing that was prophesied 500 years before Christ, Matthew is saying, is fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Matthew does that repeatedly in his gospel. Read through his gospel. He's always connecting the story of Jesus back to the Old Testament to show us that it really is the case that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything promised. It was one of the significant influences in my coming to faith in Christ. Before I believed in Jesus and trusted myself to Jesus, before I was converted, Right, We do understand this, don't we? You're not born a Christian. You are born again a Christian. Something happens to you. There's some power that invades, as we sang this morning, Lord, why was I made a guest? Why did I enter in while there was still room? The same love that spread the feast sweetly, gently, powerfully drew me in. It's what we said. The only explanation for a person being a Christian at all is the grace of God start to finish. Overcoming death in your life, overcoming blindness, overcoming deafness, imparting a principle of new life so that you're raised from death to life. Do you know this experience? That's what it is to be a Christian. 
before I became a Christian. After someone had shared the gospel with me, I went to my home in Niles, Michigan, and I scoured the house for any religious book I could find. And I found two. I found a Bible that had never been used, and I found a book called The Day Christ Died by a Roman Catholic layman named Jim Bishop. And in the book, he identifies half a dozen, eight Old Testament prophecies that all get directed and shown to be fulfilled in the life of Jesus. I finished the book. I said, there's no way in the world this is a coincidence. Those prophecies fulfilled in the life of Jesus do that. They, they magnify Christ. They show you that He really is the fulfillment of everything anticipated in the Old Testament. But you know what they do as well? Those prophecies in their setting connect you to details of the big and unfolding story. So when you see a citation, a detail in the New Testament text, let it lead you back into that great grand unfolding narrative. And if you go to Zechariah 9, 10, and 11, and 12, and 13, and 14, and you read them, read them several times, here is what you will see. Here's what you will find. You will find the promise of a king and the arrival of that king. And then in prophetic form, you will read of the rejection of that shepherd king who is rejected for 30 pieces of silver. And then following the rejection of that king, as you get to the end of the prophecy in chapter 14, you will see, you will read of the vindication and exaltation of the king and how the rule and reign of the humble, meek, but righteous and just king will extend from sea to sea, will cover the whole earth. And what is God doing in the days of Zechariah, but keeping the hope alive. Keeping the hope alive. The hope that seemed to be extinguished by the marauding hordes of Assyrians, followed by the marauding hordes of Babylonians, and the deportation to Babylon, and the scattering into the diaspora. A hope that seemed to be extinguished when the last king was brutally, brutally killed. To be followed by his successor who was taken off into Babylon and imprisoned after having had his eyes plucked out. The promise of a king. A king who would be rejected, but who following his rejection would be vindicated and whose rule and reign in justice and righteousness would extend across the face of the globe, keeping the hope alive. And as you read this particular text, it takes you back into that great and grand unfolding story. It's a story that begins way back in the third chapter of Genesis and unfolds across all of the pages of the Old Testament. 
and finds its fulfillment, its inauguration, its initiation in Jesus and will find its consummation in the return of the king. Don't you love that language, the return of the king? Why is that so familiar to us? Because we've either read The Lord of the Rings, or we've seen the film, or we've heard our kids or grandkids use that language, the return of the king. You know why fables and stories are so compelling? Because they're mimicking the big story. Works that way all the time. What's my favorite fairy tale? Robin Hood. How come? Because Richard the Lionheart is coming back. And when he comes back, he will restore peace to Sherwood Forest. He will deal with the usurper. He will deal with that nasty sheriff of Nottingham. And the people will be liberated from their oppression. And shalom will be restored to Sherwood Forest. Why do women love Cinderella? Because the handsome prince comes to deliver her from the ash heap where she has been cast by the wicked stepmother and oppressed by the wicked stepsisters. But the glorious prince comes, doesn't he? And the glorious prince will come and he will deliver his people In these days, despised, rejected, oppressed, abused, mocked, scoffed at. You're Cinderella, folks. Don't expect the world to like you. At best, expect the world to tolerate you and put up with you. But don't expect them to like you. And too often through the course of history, you can expect something far different even from being tolerated. You can expect, read the history of the church, read what is going on in the lives of your brothers and sisters right now around the world. You can expect to experience what Jesus experienced if they hated me. They will hate you. If they drag you into, me into the courts, they'll drag you into the courts. But you know what? The prince is coming. And the prince is coming for Cinderella. And he will slip that glass slipper on her foot and she will become the ravishing beauty, the object of his love and delight. Why do myths and fairy tales capture our hearts? Because they're knockoffs. They're imitations. They mimic the great and true story. The story that unfolds across the pages of Scripture. Let these passages, these citations lead you back into that great and glorious and unfolding story. And as you do that, you'll find some marvelous surprises. I've got a couple of minutes, so I'll share one with you. One that I'm still staggered by, still stunned by, that I did not see until this past Wednesday morning as the men were studying Psalm 91. Look at Matthew chapter 4. Go back to the beginning of Matthew's gospel. And let me read these verses. This is in the temptation of Jesus. 
And Jesus is tempted three times by the tempter, by Satan, by the devil, by the great enemy of God, the great opponent of God. And the first time in Matthew chapter 4 when he is, he is tempted to turn stones into bread, Jesus quotes scripture. Jesus quotes scripture to the serpent, to the devil. But then the second time, verse 5 of chapter 4, the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. The devil is quoting scripture back to the one who quoted scripture. It is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Does anybody in this room, other than the guys who were there Wednesday morning, have any idea what comes next in Psalm 91? Raise your hand if you know. Turn back to Psalm 91. I tell you, I could be a TV evangelist right now. Turn back to Psalm 91 and let's read those verses again in their context, in their setting. Start at verse 9. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. Why do you suppose the devil didn't keep reading? You see, because the passage takes you back to the original setting and that's the great story, isn't it? That's the great story rooted in Genesis 3.15. He will bruise you on the heel, but you will crush him on the head. Oh, devil, be careful when you quote Scripture. Because in one way or another, every citation takes you back to the beginnings and the continuings of the unfolding story of King Jesus, whose trajectory is from glory to suffering, from praise in the Father's presence to lament on the cross for you, so that the trajectory of your lives might be what it was for Jesus from lament to praise, from suffering to glory. If you are a Christian this morning, you are attached to Jesus. 
And if I could, I'd hit the play button for the last three minutes of Mark's sermon last week to say to you, this is your story. You are weeping now, but joy comes in the morning. The morning that breaks eternally fresh and bright and clear for all who have entrusted themselves to this king. Thanks be to God. Be a detective this week and see what you can find. Let's pray together.